Hi, welcome to Digging, the only podcast focused solely on infrastructure and the heavy civil construction industry. I'm your host, Taylor Maurer, Senior Managing Partner at HCRC, Heavy Civil Resource Consultants. In this podcast, we explore challenges faced in the industry, investigate the effects of politics, the economy, trends, including stories of success and stories of failure. It is our goal to provide interesting and informative discussions to help educate heavy civil construction professionals to be more successful and to cultivate the industry as a whole. So let's dig in. All right. Well, thank you, Ken, for um, joining us today, our featured guest on our podcast. Ken, I will read your bio that you've provided, and then I'm interested in digging in more into this. So Ken Simonson has been the chief economist for the Associated General Contractors of America, the leading trade association for the construction industry since 2001. He has more than 40 years of experience analyzing, advocating, and communicating about economic and tax issues. Among his outside activities, he advises the Census Bureau on overhauling its construction data. He is a fellow and past president of the National Association for Business Economics, and he is a co-director of the Tax Economist Forum and a professional meeting group he co-founded in 1982. Uh, You have a BA from the University of Chicago, IC, and also a master's from Northwestern University. It's Ken, it sounds like you are a very busy man. I'm busy, but happily busy. It's uh, work that I really enjoy doing. Fantastic. Fantastic. Did you grow up in the Midwest? No, I actually grew up in Washington, D.C., which is where I live now and where I'm working from these days. AGC's office is in Arlington, Virginia, just across the river from uh, Georgetown. But uh, since March, I've been happily working from home. All right. Fantastic. Was there something special that took you to to Chicago besides school? Uh, I was uh, very fond of math. And uh, in seventh grade, I got to participate in a national high school math contest at the then Conrad Hilton Hotel in Chicago. And I really enjoyed the city. Uh, my math teacher who took me and uh, two other two classmates to this contest. He also took us to the University of Chicago, and I learned uh, that it it was very strong in math. So uh, I uh, applied there. I started out as a math major and quickly found that I had pretty much reached my limit in math, uh, but I wanted to get back to something that used numbers. And so I switched to economics, and that's been my career path ever since. All right. Fantastic. I noticed that you've worked for trade associations since, I think I saw on LinkedIn, since the mid-80s. Did you also work in the private sector? I started out working for an economic consultant whose clients were a trade associations and business groups like the National Association of Manufacturers and the Business Roundtable, looking at the impact of major tax policy changes on the overall economy and on specific industries. And uh, then later I worked for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I've also worked uh, on the side uh, doing articles for uh, different trade associations. I've always found it interesting to see how 
uh, business and specific industries fit into the economy, uh, but I prefer uh, working for a broad industry group or a cross-industry group uh, rather than a specific company. Okay, fantastic. And, and it sounds like you've been doing that pretty much your entire career then. Yeah, from various vantage points. I also spent three years in uh, the Office of Economic Research of the U.S. Small Business Administration, and I had a short stand earlier uh, for a, a former government agency that regulated savings and loan associations and looked at how the tax treatment of those compared to banks and credit unions. So a wide variety of industries over my career, but always generally at the level of, of uh, economic impacts uh, and how the industry fit into the economy. And how did you end up at the AGC? Uh, the, from my standpoint, it was chance. I was working in the Office of Advocacy of the SBA uh, when the then CEO of Associated General Contractors, he's still our CEO, Steve Sander, called me up out of the blue. He said, I'm looking for an economist who can turn data into sound bites. And that was something I had done in my previous job at American Trucking Association, speaking to uh, trucking companies, to media, and to other audiences about the role of that industry in the economy and how policy changes, tax and other, were affecting them. And uh, uh, I, while I enjoyed some of the work that I did inside government, I knew I'd never get to speak publicly. Uh, and so I... Uh, after discussion, started with AAGC actually on September 10th, 2001. So it's a day that neither Steve nor I will ever forget. But yes. from day two, people wanted to know, well, what's going to happen to construction? What's the impact of the 9-11 uh, going to be on different segments of the industry? So I was able to start uh, providing information, and it's gone on for, for there, from there for almost 20 years now. What an interesting day to start a new job with just the way the events impacted everything in our country, including construction. Yes, and in some ways we're in an equally disruptive time now. Uh, it's obviously, it's not a single event, not localized to uh, just a couple of areas, and uh, it, it continues to play out, but uh, it's had, uh, very dramatic effects on large parts of the economy. And uh, so uh, I guess you can say if, there, if there's any preparation for looking at how the pandemic affects uh, construction, uh, it would be having been on the job on 9-11. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I've got to ask, what do you enjoy doing? What do you do when you're not being an economist? Well, my two favorite pastimes are biking uh, for pleasure, uh, exploring different neighborhoods of D.C. and surrounding areas. You know, we have uh, this wonderful uh, canal that stretches from Georgetown to Cumberland, Maryland, 185 miles. And I've ridden segments of that. I don't think I'll ever do the whole thing, although there are people who do that. Um, but uh, I also uh, go out uh, in different directions in the suburbs. And then I like gardening. Uh, strange as it may sound, I actually enjoy weeding a lot because that's when I get to listen to a book. And uh, so the weeding itself is mindless enough that I can concentrate on hearing the book. 
Fantastic. And uh, have are you using an electric bicycle these days? Or, uh, a pedal no, assist yet, or traditional? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I use a, a hybrid bike. I, I try to pick the flattest routes possible. I generally make up the route as I go along. Uh, uh, DC area does have a lot of really good bike paths now. Um, some of the stream beds at, uh, in Montgomery and Prince George's County, Maryland, for instance. And there's a, a rail trail that leads from Georgetown up to close to my neighborhood. And there's one in Virginia that runs for about 45 miles. And then there's a, a lovely ride along the Potomac River down to Mount Vernon. So I do all of those, but I also uh, do streets and neighborhoods. Uh, but I generally, when I'm making a choice about where to turn, I'll look for which stays flattest. <laughs> good, good. Um, yeah, biking is great. Uh, I've got a three-year-old who just started pedaling uh, without training wheels. So um, wow. it, it, it's uh, reignited my love, a love that I didn't really ever lose. I do a, a little bit of commuting on my bicycle, and but uh, yeah, bicycling is, is just a lot of fun. And I feel like there's something also where you can kind of drop into the zen of just pedaling and going somewhere. Um, yeah. So nice. All right. Let's, we've got questions that I've collected from people in the heavy civil industry who are interested in getting your feedback. Most of them have something to do with the, um, the pandemic or how the pandemic's affecting construction or um, interested in getting your insight or thoughts on the incoming administration. Our first question is from Keith Brubacher. He is the president of Brubacher Excavating, their site development contractor in Eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, he's got a few questions. The first is, are any trends beginning to emerge that may indicate on how commercial and office spaces will be repurposed? Well, let me start by mentioning a survey that AGC of America has done in uh, the fall and into December for the past 10 years. We call it, uh, it's co-sponsored by SAGE. We call it the AGC SAGE Business Hiring and Outlook Survey. And what we found this year uh, was um, a lot more pessimism than ever before. In general, uh, contractors are a very optimistic breed. I think you have to be to uh, survive the, the challenges of contracting. Uh, but this year we asked about 16 different construction categories. And for all but three of those, more people said they expect the market to shrink than to expand compared to 2021. Uh, the three exceptions were what we called other healthcare, uh, that's uh, non-hospital kinds of facilities like clinics, uh, testing and screening facilities, medical labs. Uh, that was the one they were most optimistic about on balance. Warehouses and a small net optimism about water and sewer construction. Uh, for the rest of the market, uh, the uh, degree of pessimism ranged from nearly neutral about hospitals to extremely negative about uh, private offices, retail, and lodging. And uh, I, I think that uh, the, the membership, we got over 1,300 responses from all over the country. Uh, you may know that AGC has the chapters in every state and uh, DC and Puerto Rico, and uh, they've been very generous with their time in answering our surveys. But uh, at any rate, 
uh, I, I think that, that uh, I see things pretty much as they do, that uh, we're in for a really rough patch for construction of retail, of hotels, probably private offices. It remains to be seen whether uh, current office space will eventually fill up again or companies are going to go back to what we saw until the last decade of building suburban office parks rather than clustering uh, in denser downtown and older suburban areas. Um, so I, I think uh, for now th that uh, is still going to be a, a really tough market to find new work in. Now renovation and repurposing of some retail space, uh, there will be opportunities there, uh, but much less than when uh, people were putting up big box stores and uh, neighborhood and regional shopping centers, hotels of all grades and offices. Now is the warehouse uh, expansion in the warehouse sector, is that primarily driven by e-commerce? Absolutely. And uh, in particular, uh, uh, distributors are looking for ways of getting things to final consumers faster. Uh, we all are ordering much more stuff from home and we want it delivered as soon as possible. So I think the growth in the warehouse sector will be more in what I call last mile or last hour distribution facilities rather than those massive fulfillment centers out near the junction of interstates and uh, other kinds of uh, fringe areas. Uh, but there's also been a lot of construction by uh, Amazon, FedEx, other distribution companies at or just off airport properties. And uh, then third, uh, cold storage facilities because we're having uh, foods, temperature sensitive foods delivered direct to our homes. And of course now with the vaccine distribution, uh, the Pfizer vaccine for instance requires extraordinarily cold temperatures. Moderna also uh, much colder than uh, typical refrigeration. So uh, a premium on putting in those kinds of distribution facilities. Interesting. And that uh, answers a good bit of Keith's next question in regards to the changes, pace, location, size of warehouse distribution center construction. He does ask, uh, what do you think it will look like over the next three to five years? I think that the decline in retail construction is permanent, that we're not going to have the same number of stores uh, that we've had per, per capita for a long time. Um, and uh, a large reason for that is that we will continue to order from home. Uh, yes, we'll probably go back to grocery stores more than we have been, but even there, I think a lot of people who have tried home delivery of food or uh, pick up from a hybrid store that may have um, just a, a, a place where uh, folks from Instacart or other uh, professional shoppers, shall we say, are aggregating the, the order ahead of time, um, that that won't look like a store. Instead, it will be a, a place not open to the public, but uh, will be uh, sort of a hybrid between retail and warehouse space. Uh, so I, I really think that uh, the warehouse market will keep evolving. For instance, these uh, last mile facilities that I talked about, uh, as we get more comfortable with robotic or autonomous vehicle delivery, maybe even drones, uh, there won't be a need for so many truck uh, bays and parking spaces. And so the footprint may shrink. At the same time, uh, the, the storage and picking inside will be more and more automated, and that will allow facilities to grow taller. 
Sure, sure, okay. Um, Keith also asked what that can never happen in construction situations or impacting the construction labor market as they indeed begin to incur. Uh, he's, I think, relating to ongoing skill labor shortage in many of the trades. Yeah, there, there are a lot of uh, cross-cutting currents uh, regarding labor. Um, obviously, the, the need to practice uh, social distancing and uh, other safety practices on job sites, that's been a huge challenge for contractors to figure out how many workers to allow on the job site at one time, how to uh, erect uh, things that require two people to be working in close contact. And uh, then uh, there's also the challenge of uh, so many workers uh, getting sick or at least getting exposed and uh, needing to uh, quarantine, other workers having to stay home to take care of someone who's sick or uh, whom they can't put into childcare or into school, for instance. Um, so I, I think we are in for uh, a full year ahead of uh, challenges in uh, how to work and how to uh, deal with uh, unexpected shortages of uh, companies' own workers or subcontractors' workers. And then third, uh, the whole supply chain has been uh, disrupted. So the uh, deliveries aren't necessarily coming when expected because uh, the uh, manufacturer or producer uh, may not have their full workforce or their problems uh, in transport. Okay. Jeff Murray, who has spent his career in land development um, and is now the vice president for Phil's Mayor Estates, asks, what is your feeling on anticipated democratic spending? Do you think there's a difference in the deficit spending between parties with respect to impact on construction, on the construction industry? Absolutely. It remains to be seen how much we'll get through this Congress, but I think President Biden uh, has made it clear that he plans to put forth a large infrastructure bill sometime in February. That would be in addition to the $1.9 trillion relief package that he has already outlined. However, uh, with Congress very closely divided, both House and Senate, uh, and now with the Senate likely to be tied up uh, for uh, an, uh, an indefinite period on an impeachment trial, it's not at all clear uh, how quickly things could move through the Senate. I think that the House will act promptly. Uh, and it will probably be quite a wide-ranging infrastructure bill. In contrast, uh, President Trump, of course, uh, became notorious for saying he wanted a trillion or a trillion and a half or even two trillion dollars at one point worth of infrastructure spending, and yet he never sat down with congressional leaders to work out uh, a feasible package, let alone provide legislative language. Uh, Biden, having spent 36 years in the Senate and then eight years as vice president, is very attuned to uh, actually making legislation happen. So I do think that there will be a big difference, uh, but uh, it doesn't mean that he can roll things right through Congress. Sure. Uh, Jeff goes on to say, uh, it seems that with the rates being so low, it's a good long-term investment. 
to facilitate growth in the future. Uh, what do you think of from this perspective of our industry, both in short and long term, and how are international interest rates shaping up right now relative to other times or predictions on what they might look like in going forward? I agree that uh, interest rates are extraordinarily low and uh, state and local governments that issue a lot of municipal bonds uh, should be able to take advantage of that if their credit ratings and their constitutions uh, support uh, issuing more bonds. Uh, uh, but uh, they are very challenged right now in terms of uh, having to meet budget balanced budget requirements in a fiscal year. Now the bonding sometimes falls outside of that, uh, but uh, sometimes the interest payments have to fit into that. Uh, and also uh, they have to look at the revenue uh, that will back up those interest payments and repayment of the principal of the bonds. So uh, yes, it, it does seem like a great time to take advantage of low interest rates, but there are a lot of constraints on state and local governments. Uh, the federal government uh, doesn't have that kind of constraint, but uh, there are plenty of other things that uh, members of Congress, as well as the president, want to do, and uh, it's not going to be an easy sale to get uh, infrastructure spending done. Okay. Joe Leone, president of WPM civil construction in central Texas uh, ask, how will the gas tax shortfall from the pandemic affect funding for DOT projects? Um, what other funding scenarios could evaluate what that are more stable in light of the pandemic events? The gas tax certainly has been affected as have every other revenue source still being affected. There's been some drop in driving and in uh, truck mileage, but uh, those things have bounced back uh, better than it looked like they would early last spring. Um, and AASHTO, the Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials that represents all of the state DOTs, uh, they had uh, predicted early last spring that uh, the revenue loss through June of this year would be on the order of $50 billion. They later scaled that back to $37 billion, still a huge figure. Um, I haven't seen a recent estimate. Uh, their plea was for the federal government to backfill that amount. I doubt that the, the Congress will go all that way, but um, that will be part of the discussion over an infrastructure package, and it can be a big help to enabling DOTs to go forward with the bid lettings that they had planned. What we saw in 2020 was actually some projects got speeded up, a few states awarded projects earlier than they had planned to in order to take advantage of the reduced traffic load and, and to provide a more economic uh, stimulus within the state. Uh, but I think uh, now it's gonna be closer to going back to, to regular order in terms of when they put projects out to bid. Some states I think are certainly gonna have a harder time meeting those bid letting schedules. And then another piece is toll roads. We had seen growth in uh, toll uh, roads, bridges, and tunnels, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, traffic there has uh, dropped pretty severely, and they depend much more on those tolls than they do on uh, other funding sources. So I think 
uh, we're going to see a slowdown in the amount of toll road building. I don't believe that, that a, this question was included, but it relates to uh, what we're talking about in regards to tolls. Do, do you also feel like uh, in the current state of affairs that it will negatively affect uh, public-private partnership infrastructure projects? I think that that's uh, going to be a, a tough sale at this point uh, because there is so much uncertainty about the revenue streams that would be associated with uh, any project. And uh, th there have been some setbacks. Uh, where I live in Washington, D.C., we're uh, just inside the area that a light rail line was being built by a public-private partnership. Uh, where sure, the, the, the purple line, correct? That's right, the purple yeah. line. The, the, the contractors pulled out of the project, and uh, so the, the project has been set back for at least several months and maybe longer. And I think that's a warning signal to other potential P3 projects. Sure, absolutely. Joe goes on to ask, what state regions will see an increase in construction spending and what states will see a uh, decrease? Um, which could be the most dramatic? I don't expect you to go through all 50 states here, but yeah. are there certain ones that you have kind of on the, the top of your mind in regards to seeing increases or decreases? Yes, I, I mentioned at the outset the survey that AGC completed uh, and released on January 7th. We got enough responses from contractors in half the states to break out uh, the answers that they gave. And uh, we did see uh, quite a difference. Uh, first of all, we looked at the four census regions and contractors in the Northeast were much more pessimistic about uh, the overall outlook. In fact, more pessimistic than the national average about every category. And contractors in the South were more optimistic about every categories. Uh, the most optimistic state uh, was uh, contractors from Alabama. Oh. And we had uh, the most pessimistic uh, were from Alaska, New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Um, Oklahoma also pretty pessimistic. So uh, it, it's a, a patchwork uh, in broad terms, northeast, down, south, uh, more optimistic. But uh, there are certainly some spots within there. Looking on, on the longer term than uh, just this coming year, uh, we... I look every year at how state population has changed. Census Bureau does an estimate state by state uh, every December as of July 1st. This is a separate from the decennial census. We're still waiting for those results from the April 1st uh, census date. Uh, but uh, what we saw in the annual report uh, was that 16 states lost population last year. That was the most ever in the 120 years that they've been doing annual estimates. And U.S. population growth slowed down uh, to just uh, a third of a percent um, from about double that rate earlier in the decade. So we're certainly on a, a decelerating growth path. And unfortunately, uh, the coronavirus is making things even worse, increasing the death rate and uh, it seems likely to reduce, uh, or at least the, the unemployment that's gone along with it uh, may uh, lead to a lower birth rate. But at any rate, uh, there are big differences between states. Uh, again, the population trends tend to say the Northeast uh, and the midsection of the country have the slowest growth rates or the 
states that uh, are losing population. The highest growth is concentrated in a few states in the South, uh, South Carolina, Texas, Florida, and then in the West, uh, Colorado, Washington, and uh, uh, also the highest growth has been in uh, uh, Idaho for the last three of the last four years, Arizona last year, Nevada, Utah. Um, so I think that on a longer term basis, uh, those trends have been fairly stable, even though that the overall growth rate is slowing down. And um, California went from a, having a higher growth rate than the country as a whole as recently as 2014 to losing population for the first time in the 120 year history of this series, probably the first time since California became a state in 1858. Um, and I think that's because uh, the, uh, the wildfires and the unexpected power outages have just added to what was already a difficult, challenging situation in terms of extremely high house prices and possibly long commuting times, difficulty starting and continuing a business. Uh, so um, I would no longer say that California has very strong uh, construction prospects over the longer term. However, uh, Los Angeles is still preparing for the 2028 Olympics. Uh, there are a lot of other uh, public works projects that uh, Californians have voted for in bond issues and in raising their gas tax several years ago and then reaffirming that they wanted to keep that in place. So I think public spending uh, in California may do better than uh, the state population changes would uh, lead you to expect. So that, that's kind of a, a, a quick tour of the whole map. Sure. And, and being a resident of California myself at, at the time um, and, and a business owner and somebody who is uh, interested in getting into the housing market, I, I feel the pains personally of everything yeah. that you mentioned. It, do you feel like there is, uh, is a change in state policy that could alive, uh, help alleviate some of these these things, or is it pretty much uh, they're here and they're going to be here for a while and it doesn't matter what the policy is? Policies certainly make a difference. Uh, I don't think that uh, anybody can uh, change the, the climate and so uh, the, the meteorological climate, but they can certainly change the, the political and economic climate. And uh, California uh, seems determined to um, emphasize a as fast a switch as possible to non-carbon-based um, non energy. And that has a lot of implications for construction costs. If you have to put uh, solar panels uh, on your own house, uh, that adds a lot of cost compared to buying from a, uh, an energy producer that uh, may be able to put a solar farm out in the Mojave Desert or even buy it from across state lines. And, uh, Arizona or Nevada. And uh, uh, there are a lot of land use restrictions that make it very difficult to develop land and uh, to build on it. Uh, the wildfires uh, make it even worse in terms of uh, what kind of planning you can do, what uh, kind of space you have to have around your property. Uh, a lot of uh, um, we don't want to see higher density where we live. And so that uh, means that uh, people who are looking for housing have to go ever further out. Uh, so a, a lot of those things could be changed, but I don't see a likelihood that that will happen in California. Other states may be 
there will be changes in attitude that way. But right now, the tendency seems to be in a lot of states to uh, get more restrictive and more proscriptive as to what prescriptive as to what has to uh, be included in uh, development, whether it's a house or non-residential developments. Sure. Joe goes on to ask, with both houses and executive branch being controlled by the Democratic Party, will cities with old combination storm sewer lines see federal funding to stay in compliance with the Clean Water Act? For instance, Detroit sewage goes from a treatment uh, for treatment at the same place the stormwater does through a combined sewer system. When there is snow melt off or a big rain, the water treatment facility doesn't have the capacity to treat any of the water uh, and release it into the waterways. So, yeah, we, we've seen uh, these uh, combined storm and sanitary sewer systems uh, being uh, under court order or uh, agreements with the EPA for uh, cities to undertake projects that sometimes last well over a decade. That's been the case here in D.C. that. Uh, the D.C. water has been building uh, huge new tunnels and uh, retention caverns in parts of the city, and they'll be doing that for several more years. They're also undertaking initiatives to stop as much runoff. Uh, I benefited from that. I got a grant to uh, put in a pervious pavement in my own driveway and uh, help buying a couple of rain barrels. Um, on the uh, parking lanes of the streets near me. There are now bump outs that have little rain gardens. So uh, a lot of things, but uh, in terms of big construction, yeah, I, I think that's gonna continue. And I do think that uh, this administration will push for more funding for that. Um, whether it gets through Congress, again, goes back to that close balance and, and the very many priorities to be funded. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this episode of Digging Interesting. I will ask just one thing of you. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. We welcome your feedback and ideas for future podcasts and guests. To connect with us, please email me at taylorm at hcrc.us. We want to thank everyone who contributes to the making of Digging, including Lucas West on sound design, Josh Roberts for the kick-ass music, and our clients for making it possible for us to fund this idea and make it a reality. And one last plug, if you are in need of exceptional talent capture in the heavy civil construction industry or consultation regarding the future of your career in the industry, please visit www.hcrc.us or contact us at 828 828- 515-4272. Thank you, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Digging. Check the episode notes for Ken Simonson's contact information, as well as a link to sign up for his weekly Data Digest blog. We're also going to include a link for the AGC website there. Next time on Digging, we'll get to part two with Ken Simonson. <laughs>